with the Giraffe Heroes Project, I found it in helping make the world a better place. And it was a hell of an adventure, by the way. It was more of an adventure than hanging from a rope. It was more of an adventure than getting shot at because it was tough. It took every every bit of toughness and street smarts I had. To Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I talk with fascinating, talented, and inspiring guests who reflect on the adventures and challenges of aging and who are living their lives with vibrance and purpose. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist, writer, and fellow Zestful Ager. I want to invite you to my brand new free webinar, Zestful Aging. Here's how you do it. You can sign up at NicoleChristina.com. And as always, I appreciate your feedback. I hope you enjoyed my conversation last week with Anastasia Podinger, the professional photographer who created the Project 100, What Time Creates. Next week, we're going to have a special Memorial Day double header for you. I'm going to be speaking with Michelle Vigna Balstus and Jincy Hines. Well, I have my Jack Russell Terrier Sparky right beside me and my coffee in my hand. So let's begin. Today we have a special treat. I'm going to be speaking with John Graham, who was a foreign service officer for 15 years. He was in the middle of the revolution in Libya and the war in Vietnam. For three years, he was a member of NATO's top secret nuclear planning group and then served as a foreign policy advisor to Senator John Glenn. At the United Nations, he was deeply involved in U.S. initiatives in Southern Africa, Southern Asia, and Cuba. Outside of the government, John's been a part of a major peace-building effort in the Middle East and Africa. And since 1983, he's been the leader of a really unusual project called Giraffe Heroes Project, which is how I found him. And it's an international organization moving people to stick their necks out for the common good and giving them the tools to succeed. Thank you so much for joining us, John. My pleasure. You know, it's hard to know where to start with you. There's Denali, there's uh, your international work, there's Giraffe Heroes. Where would you like to start today? Uh, well, wherever your listeners uh, want to start. And uh, I understand that uh, we're not all spring chickens anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it, it's interesting because um, I have had a, an extremely interesting life, I suppose. I tell my friends I'm lucky to be alive. And that's not, not an exaggeration. My life has been very physical. Uh, and not only uh, have I been climbing mountains and stuff, but my Foreign Service career was mostly in places where I didn't wear a fancy suit and walk in and out of embassies. I was dodging bullets or doing mm -hmm. other things, either mm -hmm. starting or stopping revolutions or the like. So I am lucky to, to be alive. And, and now all of that is uh, in the rearview mirror. I've written a memoir on the edge. I've tried to put all of it down honestly and to reflect on what it means to 
to look at the last, you know, the last sections of, of life when I am no, by no means going to climb Mount Everest anymore or whatever, uh, nor is anyone going to hire me to be a pre president of the United States or whatever. I'm 76 years old. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking a lot at what has formed my life since the very beginning, which is what makes my life meaningful. And therein starts the story. I, uh, you ask how to start. Well, that's where it starts for me. I was asking what made my life meaningful when I was a teenager, but I had all the wrong answers to those questions. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of uh, young men in that era, this has been the early 50s, uh, my heroes were, you know, like John Wayne, and I read books about swashbucklers and <laughs> cowboys and space heroes and whatever. And it seemed to me that that's what I wanted to be, that what was meaningful in my life was to be a real man in the sense of the John Wayne image of a man. Mm-hmm. I didn't, I mean, I love him, but I didn't have that kind of father. He was a quiet, introspective guy, intellectual. And then I so much wanted him to be a, you know, a two-fisted fellow, and he just wasn't that kind of guy. And then uh, I grew up six foot, six and a half feet tall, so I grew up very skinny, and so was pushed around by bullies uh, consistently. Mm. Mm. And so that just created a, a rage in me to get back. The long story short is that the time I was in my late teens, I had a real sense of meaning, all right, and the sense of meaning was to create a, a physical life to be a, to, to be a, or quote, a real man in the John Wayne sense, and mm -hmm. to get, to, so as to get back at the bullies, et cetera, et cetera. So all very, all very, in retrospect, of course, very shallow. And it, the problem was, is that it didn't end the time I left my teens. I, I oriented my whole life in that direction. I had a strong sense of meaning and purpose, but the meaning and purpose in my life was to do tougher and more dangerous things. I see. And, you know, it's interesting because here is where the story gets interesting because I, I had plenty of opportunities that kept showing up. For one thing, I went to uh, Harvard, but I didn't go there. I, I didn't. What I gained from Harvard was not so much the intellectual side of it. I, I gained a hero's body. I rode crew for Harvard and put on 30, 30 pounds of muscle and all of a sudden became an athlete. And at 6'4", nobody would mess with me anymore. No ah. bullies, nothing. Uh -huh. So I then I I joined the, I learned how to climb mountains and ended up halfway through my college career making an extremely difficult and dangerous first ascent in Alaska the north face of Mount McKinley it's a climb that's so dangerous that no one's even tried it since so it's 55 years now and it's it's still un unrepeated because it was so difficult and so dangerous so I climbed a lot of mountains because uh, I had the body to do that then I started, um, after college, I hitchhiked around the world. That took a, a, a year, and I, I had, a, um, I had a, a, a press pass from the Boston Globe, so I went into one war zone after the other, mm -hmm. Cyprus, uh, Vietnam, uh, uh, Eritrea. And, you know, people were shooting at me, and I was just this naive 22-year-old, you know, walking around and, and filing stories and just having a hell of a good time. Because I, by then, after especially after this, the mountain climbing exploits, I had figured out that I was um, uh, un unkillable, that I was indestructible. Uh -huh. 
so there I am in my mid twenties. I'm I, I, I'm tough. I'm smart. I'm quick. Uh, I I defeat the bad guys. No one bullies me, and I'm in one dangerous situation after the other. And again, my my memoir is full of these stories. I even had to leave some of them out because when you stack them all together, it's like, well, how is this guy still alive? <laughs> so what were you trying to prove, John? It sounds like you were out there just saying, "See if you can hurt me." What do you think your your goal was? It wasn't so much see if you can hurt me. It's like how uh, how do I be a man? And there was it was insatiable. There was no answer to it. I didn't realize that then. Mm. Um, but I quickly exceeded the exploits of all of my paperback book heroes, and uh, and and believing myself indestructible, I went from one dangerous adventure to to the next. And so at a certain point, I knew I had to earn a living. And so I joined the U.S. Foreign Service. Mm-hmm. I, I passed their exams. And to their credit, they rather quickly realized that I was kind of a unique character. And so <laughs> they didn't send me to embassies in Europe. They sent me to jungles and deserts. Like I was, like you mentioned, I was in the middle of the first revolution in Libya in 1969. Everyone else was freaking out, but the minute I saw those overturned cars burning in the streets and howling mobs, I loved it. I just, I, uh, I, I love the risk. I've always loved risk, and I still do. But that was, uh, that was like perfect. And then from there, I went. I asked the State Department to send me to the most difficult and dangerous place in Vietnam, which they did. I was the manager, the city ad- advisor to the mayor of Hue, which was a small city in the very north end of what was then South Vietnam. And I didn't disappoint. I, I, I won't tell the whole story, but uh, I was in the Hue during the Easter offensive when the city was surrounded on three sides by North Vietnamese troops. And I was so, so lucky to get out with my life. I came back from Vietnam um, with what is now called PTSD, and, mm-hmm. and I went. the State Department sent me to Stanford for a year to, to work myself out of it, but I would walk on the shadow sides of the streets in Palo Alto, California, mm-hmm. to avoid sniper fire. I was that messed up. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah, I was just going to say, I just to complete the story in Vietnam, that's where the turning point had this crazy this passion and, and misguided purpose at adventure and risk. It was not a purpose that had anything to do with any other people. I want to emphasize that. There was no compassion in it. There was no sense of me being part of a community. There was no sense of me I helping see. other people. You it were a just, lone, lone gun. I was a lone gun. I was exactly right with a six-shooter on my hip, and I, was a, I didn't give a damn about anybody else. I was just me, 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 me. And all of that was challenged severely in Vietnam during the height of a battle. And I, I still remember this with utter clarity. I was uh, the city was uh, was uh, under siege, as I said, and my job was to create a stable base area within the city. But the city had totally panicked. It was full of refugees from the north. The North Vietnamese army was closing in, and my job was to keep the streets of the keep the city from falling apart, so that the South Vietnamese troops could organize a defense. And to do that, I thought, oh my, the, 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 the streets are full of, of looters, mostly loot, uh, deserters from the, from the South Vietnamese divisions. And these looters were breaking windows and, and, and har- harming people and creating panic. So I didn't know what else to do. So I urged the mayor to set up a firing squad, even though I had no idea if that would help. And I knew also that the people I'd be shooting 
<clears throat> would be farm boys who'd been dragooned off their patties maybe just the week before and given a rifle and shoved into the front lines. But I did it, and I all of a sudden it hit me that here I was. My home was half a world away. I'd just given orders for one group of people to start killing other groups of people so we could all get together and kill a third group of people. What madness was that? Why was I part of this? What responsibility did I have? And I just sat down and put my head between my knees and just like sobbed. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, it was the lowest point in my life, but it was also a turning point. It took me a long time, but after that, I slowly began to crawl out of this self-centered hole and look for meaning in other places. And uh, long story short, a few years later, I found it at the United Nations where I was able to do things. Well, one of them, for example, played a decisive role in the ending of apartheid, which I'm very proud. And others uh, uh, helped build uh, coalitions and partnerships with the third world, even though my own government didn't really want that to happen. But I finally got hooked on doing good. And I realized that I could take all these skills that I had, some of my friends would say that God has given me, but I don't tend to use those terms. Mm-hmm. I could take all these skills and, and uh, I, I was smart and tough and a good negotiator and nobody messed with me. I could take all these skills and use them to do good in the world, not just create a revolution or get involved in yet another violent escapade. And that's what I was doing at the United Nations. Um, and I learned, I learned that I could be an instrument for good. And all of a sudden, that became what I wanted to do. I could, I, I, especially when, when I saw what I was doing was making a decisive effect in South Africa, that I was helping end this horrible racist oppression in South Africa. And I took, I took plenty of risk. This wasn't any bureaucratic game. I took plenty of risk because there were all kinds of people in the United States connected to the arms trade that wanted the U.S. to keep shipping guns to South African military and police because of all the money that could be made. I see. And what I did was engineered a UN embargo on South Africa so that those guns couldn't get to the army and police. And that finally allowed some uh, people to start talking the end of apartheid. And so I played a role. Did did you have people in your life who were surprised at this turnaround? Everybody was surprised at this turnaround, especially my barroom buddies. Uh, People I was hanging out with uh, engaged in doing similar things, and I was not I was not taken seriously in many ways. I'll never forget I was in New York at the United Nations, and I did a lot of freelancing. Totally against the rules, but I did it, and I I I, I started talking to peace groups because that was the time when the nuclear missiles were going into Europe, not coming out, going in, and regular and we were sending nuclear missiles to or wanting to send nuclear missiles to Europe, and so I was uh, giving some talks to peace groups at the time, and um, I my worst. My worst detractors were, were not right-wing people, uh, warmongering people, but the left. I never forget, I was in a panel discussion, and before I even started to speak, this angry woman got up and pointed her finger at me in a room full of people and accused me of being a traitor. And how could anyone in that room listen to a man who worked for the U.S. Foreign Service and was obviously a spy and a, a plant and was only there to destroy, etc., etc.? So I had, a, I had a lot of trouble 
and making myself mm-hmm. credible uh, as doing see. good. Making that transition. Well, the transition for me was easy because I once I set my mind on something, I tend to do it. And so I was totally committed. And I would, I would take, uh, in fact, I left the Foreign Service at that point. That was the biggest risk I took because um, uh, I, uh, having done the State Department's bidding so well for so long, they kept promoting me. So I found myself at a very early age at a very high rank. And uh, mm-hmm. had I just stuck it out for another five, six years, I would have been an ambassador or whatever. Had I stayed on for the full set of the career, there's absolutely no doubt that you'd see pictures of me uh, in the Oval Office advising a president. But I, I took so many risks, I couldn't do that anymore. Ronald Reagan would surely, if his people surely would have fired me once they saw what I was doing and what I believed. So um, it, it, that was the end of my career, and that was uh, that was a huge risk, and I took it uh, without any thought, because uh, uh, without any thought of, of where my next dime would come from, for example, because I was then totally committed to to doing good in the world, to being of service. It was a, quite a complete turnaround, but in a way, it wasn't a complete turnaround, because if I go back to my childhood, I think there are people that knew me then, all my contemporaries, that would have said, no, John, you were... You were a really gentle little boy. You were you were a good friend, and you were uh, you you, you like to help people. Uh, this is all before I, I I got onto this John Wayne kick. <laughs> so what I'm saying is is that I think that that what happened to me was that I it was like someone had nailed a large piece of plywood over my heart, and uh, it oh. hit it it hit all that soft stuff. And I think one reason I tried so hard to be tough was that I knew, I knew that deep inside me was a compassionate part, a so-called, I don't want to use the word, so-called soft part, um, that there was a feminine side to me. You know, the animus and the anima, the masculine and the feminine imperatives within each of us. Yes. I sensed that was true. I sensed it was there. And I hid it, I hid it, I hid it. And then finally, the United Nations, it it, all of his idiocy, also beginning that time in Vietnam with weeping over the firing squad, I, I finally got it that, that I had to be myself. I ended up going to a retreat in California, and uh, uh, it was a week-long retreat. <clears throat> and at one point, uh, all the men, it was a couple's retreat, all the men got together and uh, went off to talk about, you know, sexual things and whatever, stuff that was more, more private to men. And uh, uh, at some point, I don't know why, what prompted him, the leader of the seminar in this room full of men in a, in, a, in a cabin in the mountain, Santa Cruz Mountains, south of San Francisco, said, okay, guys, who do you think is the most feminine man in the room? This uh-huh. feminine, not in, the, not in any negative sense, but in this anima, animus sense. Mm-hmm. And to my utter surprise and shock, they all pointed to me. They all pointed to me, oh, and I, wow. I was furious. I said, how dare you? <laughs> D- I've climbed Mount McKinley. I've yeah. dodged, but you guys are accountants and graduate students. You've never done anything risk. And I just was, I just walked out and slammed the door, and I started running down these trails. I got about a half a mile, and I just sat down, realizing that these men had been absolutely right. Mm. And that was huge. It was like that card, that, that plywood being lifted from my heart, I could finally acknowledge that who I was. I was, in fact, a compassionate and loving person who had been living a lie for 30 years or 25 years, whatever it was at that point. And uh, it was huge. It was so huge, it, it took me years to 
it actually turned my life around the way I wanted to in terms of dealing with my then two children and and um, and with the rest of the world. And then came the United Nations, and that sort of completed the turn. Um, so, you know, I found the meaning of my life, and I found it in service. I found it in helping other people. I found it in helping make the world a better place. And it was a hell of an adventure, by the way. It was more of an adventure than hanging from a rope. It was more of an adventure than getting shot at because it was tough. It took yeah. every, every bit of toughness and street smarts I had to do this. And I did it. And I, I'm very proud of, 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 uh, of, uh, of what I've done since. Now, of course, it's with the Giraffe Heroes Project. And I'm, I'm actively involved now. You mentioned having offices now earlier in Zimbabwe. Well, I, we have, a, we, uh, we have an, uh, an affiliate that I run in Zimbabwe. We have eight global affiliates for the Giraffe Heroes Project. And one of them's in Zimbabwe. And it's played a key role in the getting rid of the despot Robert Mugabe. And our people now, 80 strong in Zimbabwe, are fighting hard to get the, a, a government in Zimbabwe that is fair, that is honest, and, that, and nonviolent. And I talk to them uh, almost every day via Skype uh, wow. or, or email. And so, you know, I'm like sitting back in my office in Langley, Washington State, and I'm, I'm in the middle of a revolution. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, and it's... It's the same thing. In Argentina, I'm helping direct a whole program to introduce civic education into that country's schools. In Sierra Leone, I'm, I'm helping uh, a group of people with Giraffe Heroes Sierra Leone overcome the incredible body blows of uh, first a civil war and then Ebola. And mm-hmm. uh, in uh, you know, it's just like I'm I'm doing all this stuff, and it's all I hope making the world a better place. And I'm doing it for a Giraffe Heroes Project, which I I know is someplace in your broadcast, but it's giraffe.org, giraffe.org, you can find about it. Right. Um, Tell, how did it develop? How did this project develop? Ah, good thing you asked that because yeah. I didn't do it. My wife did, Ann Medlock, my 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 uh, my second wife. Uh, we've been married now 36 years, but Anne uh, was a writer and uh, editor in New York City. Uh, that's where I'm better. I was at the United Nations. She was writing and editing, um, and she was sick and tired of all the bad news uh, uh, that she saw around here. Nobody ever told the stories of real people doing good. It was all buildings burning down or rapes and murders or whatever. She decided that what the world needed was a whole news system, a whole media system oriented around the stories of people making a difference. So she decided to start the Giraffe Heroes Project, Mm -hmm. named Giraffe because what we do is we find people who are sticking their necks out, Mm -hmm. hence hence the metaphor, who are sticking their necks out to make the world a better place. And they could be doing anything uh, from uh, working with poverty, uh, women's issues, uh, uh, crime in the streets, gang violence, you name it. And they're men and they're women. And, uh, Some more, of them very young. I was just going to say more than a few of them are children or, or teens. And they're all sticking their necks out. And we've now honored almost 1,500 of these people. Uh, Anne started the project in 1983. I joined her a year later, uh, because uh, I knew her then, we were friends. We started. She started the Giraffe Heroes Project. That was step one. Step two, we fell madly in love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so all of a sudden, it became, oh, I better look at this Giraffe Heroes Project. Whatever Anne's doing, you know, this is, this is the woman I want to spend the rest of my life with. I better get with it. 
And then I, <laughs> but I, I was so stupid. I didn't think that telling stories could work. I thought you had to, you know, lecture people and write books and stuff. That was, that was what I was going to do. Uh, and Anne showed me that storytelling is the most powerful change agent that there is. So we've been telling stories ever since, and Anne and I have been working together, building the Giraffe Heroes Project into a global force. Like I said, I, I, I now manage the overseas operations, um, and Anne, uh, Anne runs the domestic operations, which include all kinds of social media outlets uh, with these giraffe stories, plus a program for schools that reaches school children all over the English-speaking world. Amazing, and, and and how do you find your heroes? Uh, that's uh, at this point they, they basically people find us. We have a, a nomination form. Your uh, listeners will find it on our website, and people just uh, nominate uh, people they think are giraffes. We tell them what the criteria are. The person must have taken a significant risk. And it must be for the common good. It can't be just for their own self or their family. It has to be for the common good, their community, their whatever, perhaps for the world, as in fighting global warming, for example. What so, can you tell a couple stories of the ones that have struck you uh, with uh, some heroes that have uh, stayed with you in particular? <laughs> Well, it's interesting. Some of the heroes are overseas heroes. Uh, they're a guy like Farai Maguwu in, in Zimbabwe, who uh, was educated in England, went back to school and started an organization dealing with uh, the mineral trade because he saw that the people making money off the diamonds in Zimbabwe were uh, were not the poor workers who were getting paid nothing or bupkis. Right. It was the politicians and the cricket multinationals and stuff. And De Beers. And De Beers. So he stuck his neck way out. He's been beaten up and put in jail a half a dozen times. And he does. He just doesn't stop. And now he's at the forefront of, of demanding a, a just new government in Zimbabwe. Uh, then there's a, oh, there's more than just one, but there's a, a, a half a dozen, a dozen perhaps youngsters uh, in the United States. Um, who are doing just extraordinary things. Many of their actions are environmental because when you're nine, ten years old, you know, that's kind of like what you can do. You, Someone is polluting the river in your town, and so you look around and see, well, first of all, we can start cleaning it up, spend some hours on Saturday for cleanup, but that isn't what, the, what they were. these kids don't stop there. They'll say, well, wait a minute, what's, what's causing the pollution? Aha, there's a factory in our town that's dumping sludge. So these kids, they will, um, they will write letters to the editor. They'll go down to city council meetings where they're incredibly effective, by the way. You ever watch mm -hmm. an eight-year-old eight at a city or a county council uh, meeting? <laughs> no, they, I have not. Well, I tell you that the, these, these old politicians don't dare contradict them. So these kids are immensely powerful in, uh, in getting laws changed, for example, that uh, make it tougher for people to pollute. Many of the uh, uh, other children... I'm thinking one, I can't remember her name, but she's an African-American girl in Los Angeles who um, is uh, working hard to end uh, racism in her school. But she's not focused on African-Americans. She's focused on Asian-Americans. In her school, for example, the kids that were getting bullied were uh, uh, Asian kids uh, mm. that had, uh, had come over and did not speak English well. Wow. And they were getting bullied. So she started an anti-bullying campaign focused on helping Asian-American kids 
Of course, it also helped African-American kids as well. But she saw the greater picture that you can't, you can't treat anyone as a second-class citizen. And she was like, in a, she was like 12 years old. It's like just amazing. So, so somebody uh, might nominated her. Is that how it goes? They that's found right. You. And that's then what, right. What happens when you win? Um, is it is it an award? Is it what happens when you're nominated and you and your wife are really taken by their action? Sure. By the way, this girl's name is Kenesha Johnson. I just remembered. Ah. Um, so what happened to Kenesha? <clears throat> we don't have any money. We're a small nonprofit, uh, constantly struggling to raise money. But we send them a commendation, a very nice commendation. And that makes a huge difference. Um, it, it, we, I can't tell you the uh, uh, responses we get. So we, we send them a commendation, and then we tell our stories. Uh, Kanisha's story, for example, we've told far and wide uh, on our website and social media, uh, Twitter, Instagram, um, Facebook. And we have a, a, a bi-monthly blog that, that puts up a half a dozen stories a couple times a month. And so uh, hundreds, thousands of people will read about Kenesha Johnson, this African-American kid in Los Angeles who is fighting for the rights of Asian Americans in her own, mm-hmm. in her home city. And uh, so th- that's all they get from us. And in many ways, um, it's enough because the PR we can give them now that we're quite large and we're sort of, we have, if I may say so, a sort of global brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when we put our, our efforts behind the story, it, it gets a lot of exposure, which makes a lot of difference. People may, for example, let's say, for example, we've honored some guy in, I don't know, Mississippi for uh, 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 speaking out against racism. And, uh, and um, he's under a lot of threats and, and problems, uh, as you might imagine. And people will now see him on the street and say, hey, Charlie, I, I, I heard about you. I just I, I saw this thing or it was on my blog feed or, or my Facebook feed or whatever. I didn't know you were doing that. Can I help out? Can I give you a few bucks to help for your expenses? So it helps people. And in some cases, it protects them. Some of our um, some of our giraffes are classic uh, whistleblowers. That is to say, they're telling the truth about corruption and government and businesses. And they often get fired because uh, nobody wants them to tell the uh. tell the truth. But if we um, if we tell their story and they become famous, uh, it's really hard to fire them. And yes, it's re- raise it's, their profile. That's right. We raise people's profile. So I think we have definitely offered physical protection to some of these whistleblowers. Wow. So what's the process like? Someone gets nominated, let's say Kanisha. Do you and your wife sit down and, and, and look at the applications and say, you know, this person really fits or do you have a committee? What's the process? Right. No, it's, uh, it isn't just Ann and me. That would, not, that would lack credibility. We have a committee, a choosing committee, and they, they meet uh, irregularly, but usually four or five times a year. We have a, a, a team of writers and editors, and they take in the raw material we get from the nomination. They create a nomination to present to the committee, which, uh, which tells the story of the giraffe, and emphasizing those two points. Did the person take a significant risk, and was what this person did for the common good? In other words, to benefit more than just themselves or their family. And they argue. I mean, very rarely does the committee is the committee unanimous? Well, I don't. Anyway, often it's not unanimous uh, because these things are difficult. What's a risk for me, for example, may not be a risk for you. 
And uh, what's, the, uh, what's the common good for me may not seem like the common good ah, to you. Sure. So uh, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, at, at once, for example, we had someone who was working really hard at, 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 at significant risk um, to tell her side of the story on the uh, abortion question. And at the same time, we got another nomination telling the person of another person, telling the story of a person working really hard uh, and thoughtfully on the other side of the yes, issue. Yes. So we ended, we, ended, we ended up doing making a dual, uh, a dual award to these two women, one uh-huh. on each, each side of the abortion issue, but they both respected the other side. They were, they were both um, uh, approaching the issue as, a, as something the nation needed to wrestle with. Um, and, and they were both taking a whole lot of flack from their opponents and, and not freaking out, both acting bravely and persevering. So we said, what the heck? We'll make them both giraffe heroes. <laughs> So what else do you do now in your 70s, John, to uh, live vibrantly? And it sounds like you're so in love with this project. What what else do you do during your day? <laughs> well, I'd like to tell you I can still spend uh, every weekend out there uh, with uh, uh, climbing rope and skis or whatever. I can't. I don't do that. I can do. I can't do that anymore. The old body just is not what it used to be. So I've had to. You know, it's interesting. I'm sure a lot of your listeners will will rock this one. Uh, I've had to sort of reorient myself to look at my values, look at what my purpose and meaning in life is, because that has not changed. My quadriceps may a little be a little weaker, but <laughs> but my my soul was no is, yeah. is strong, stronger strong than ever. Strong as ever, right? So, uh, so I look for what I can do, and, and being who I am, I tend to do things that involve risk. Maybe not physical risk, but social risk or whatever. And so, uh, a lot of it is writing and speaking. I still, uh, I'm still out there uh, speaking to whoever wants to listen to a giraffe message, and I do a, a lot of that. Uh, and then I, I write, and uh, I, I, I do a blog, for example, on uh, sensitive political issues. Uh, and I, I, for example, just a few days ago, I sent out a piece uh, saying that uh, the Trump administration's, uh, what the Trump administration is doing in Iran is, is, is not correct. It's, it's, it's making things worse. And as a foreign service officer, here are my views on what we should be doing in Iran. Uh, a couple of weeks before that, I, I, I put out a blog on the Kavanaugh hearing. You remember the Supreme Court justice hearings? Yes, Mr. I Mr. remember well. Mr. Kavanaugh, of course you remember it. We all do. Um, and that went viral. Uh, over a million people read that blog. Um, so I'm a talking head uh, on news shows. I just did a uh, broadcast, for example, on Russia television, believe it or not. I get all over the place. The Art, uh, Russia RT television interviews me for my thoughts on Syria or uh, or uh, WikiLeaks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so I reach millions of people uh, over the airways uh, as an interviewee. And uh, those are all things that don't require uh, the kind of quads I used to have. <laughs> it just, re- just requires my brain to work. Right, 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 right. Do you have particular things that you do sort of health-wise for your body? Any Anything that you and Anne like to do um, for the purpose of keeping your body going? Yeah, uh, not enough, uh, but I... Uh, 
I I go to a gym three times a week, and mm-hmm. I work I work out for about uh, two hours three times a week. Wow. Uh, no, I should be doing more. I should be I should be like, <sighs> my daughter is a yoga professional, and I I really say, Mallory, I should buy <laughs> I want to buy some of your time. I think I'm at the stage now where I need to transfer into yoga mm. instead instead of the 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 stuff you get in gyms. Right. Because because um, I'm I'm a type a type person still and i i uh, for example i i don't know if i should say this but i gave myself a hernia in the gym because i was trying to i was trying to lift weights like i was 25 oh. 25 years oh, old oh no <laughs> keeping up with the with the university athletes in the gym and oh, i over, my goodness i overdid it <laughs> so i'm i'm actually in, in fact if any of your listeners wants to they can they can e- e- email me with their suggestion because I am looking for the exercises that are appropriate for someone 76 years old who yeah. has has been a, 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 an almost professional level athlete for most right. of my life, right. and I, I just can't do it anymore. So rather than uh, than hurt myself, what is right. the, what's a I, I'm I'm looking right now. I, I, well, I, or, have you heard of a rebounder, the mini trampoline? No. Ever I'm, your your sis your I mean your daughter may know about it. It's really fantastic. They use it at NASA yeah. because it's a very efficient exercise. Yeah. It's great for your um, inflammation and it's fun. Not that you know that's the first thing that you're you're needing, but it also has a stabilizer bar. So for folks with balance issues. Uh, it's really helpful, but what's really nice is you you can bounce as hard as you want, and you know it, you're in Washington State if it's yeah. raining or whatever. I swear by it. Huh. Okay. Well, thank you. So it's a fun thing. It um, and they use it for uh, astronauts that have come back. I guess it's really great for sort of stabilizing metabolic function. Oh. Um, but it's a. I do it because it's fun, and I can play music, have my own little dance party, um, and I'm not. I'm not seventy six, but I am fifty seven. So yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, well, uh, well, thanks. I mean, I know I yeah, have. Yeah, there you go. I mean, the answer to your question is you got to do something. Got to I mean, do the, something. You got to do something because otherwise, it all kind of gets kind of yeah. seizes, right? That's right, it, and you you use it or lose it. I mean, it's uh, I, so no, I absolutely. I I, uh, I still go out and jog for maybe two or three miles, something like that. Mm, um, tough on the joints. I just went snowshoeing with a buddy uh, for, uh, oh. uh, and that was that was fun. Yeah. So, but something, anything, because um, uh, I want to keep, the key thing is keeping my mind bright and alert. And mm. uh, what that takes, of course, is uh, a real, a, a sense of, of, of meaning mm. and a vision of what I want to do in my life, a sense of purpose. I have that. It helps mm. to have a loving partner and be in a loving relationship. Absolutely. I have, I have, I have that. But it also takes some minimum physical exercise as I, well. I agree. And uh, that, that, that helps keep my mind sharp because, you know, the mind is what I got now. I don't, uh, I'm, not a, I'm not about to do death-defying feats in the middle of nowhere anymore. Um, mm-hmm. So it's my mind and my ability to speak and to write. Um, that's the, the rest of my life is going to be about expressing my sense of vision my sense of purpose, my sense of meaning, but expressing it through how I speak and how I write, how mm-hmm. I commu- how I communicate. Right, right, absolutely. 
So interesting. The book is called On the Edge. Yes, it is. And right now it's only available as Kindle, which of course is cheaper, on Amazon. And I'm ju- I've just now signed off on the um, cover art for the uh, the print version, which probably should be available by late spring. Um, but right now it's available on Kindle, uh, Amazon, uh, okay. on, on the edge. And I just wanted you to repeat, it's giraffeheroesproject.org? No, it's giraffe.org. It's simpler. Oh, giraffe, giraffe.org. Yeah, www.giraffe.org. Okay. And, and my own website, for those that want to know more sure. about, yes. about this squirrely story, it's simple, too. <laughs> it, it's simply um, www.johngraham.org. Say it again. Jot? Uh, John Graham. Oh, dot, John. John Graham. Graham yeah. J-O-H-N-G-R-A-H-A-M dot O-R-G. Got it. Got yeah, it. Yeah. Well, John, I don't know if I've yet had a guest who has climbed Denali. I'm, I guess I haven't if you're saying it hasn't been done since you've done it. Oh, I must emphasize. Yeah, yeah. yeah, right. You have to emphasize that. The Plenty North Edge. Plenty of people have climbed Denali. Only, oh. only my team, only our team, climbed the difficult the north north face. The north, north face. face. Yeah, you you non mountain climbers got to get this terminology right. Here. Oh yeah, we got to. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that sounds like it's really important. I so appreciate your work and your fascinating history. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. It was my pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at nicolechristina.com. Next week, we're going to have a special Memorial Day doubleheader for you. I'm going to be speaking with Michelle Vigna Balstus and Jincy Hines. Michelle is an expert in all things menopausal, both the challenges of menopause and the hidden gifts that menopause offers us. And Jincy Hines is the co-author of 365 Caregiving Tips, which covers practical tips from everyday caregivers on travel and respite, and hospitals, care facilities, and hospice. So stay tuned for our special doubleheader coming up next week for your Memorial Day travels. And please consider becoming a patron of the show. You will get access to exclusive bonuses, and you will be part of the Zestful Aging community. Keep us going strong. Go to patreon.com slash zestful aging. See you next time for another episode of Zestful Aging.